Well, hey, I want to say welcome uh, to all of you, especially on this Father's Day. My name is Paul Mumaw, and, and I'm the lead pastor here at Genesis. And we've been in this, relation, or, uh, this relationship series here at Genesis that we're continuing in today. And as we do that, uh, let me just kind of ask you this question, and maybe with a show of hands. Uh, how many of you would say that you're married to someone who is very opposite you? All right, how many of you would say that? But there was like no hesitation. Lisa Hudson was like the first hand up. Uh, you know, just hands shooting up all over the place. You're, you're married to someone that's very opposite you. Well, I, I remember when Jenny and I were first married, and, and sure, there were a lot of common interests that brought us together, but we quickly realized that there were a lot of things that were a little different about us and some things that took a while to get used to. I mean, we, we, we came to understand that we had some differences when it came to our schedules, you know, that Jenny was more of a go-to-bed early, get-up-early kind of a person. I like to stay up late and sleep late if at all possible. Uh, We discovered that we were different when it came to money and how we spent money and how we saved money. We had differences in what we liked to watch on TV. She was more of a food network person. I'm a little bit more of a sports center, you know, kind of a person. We had some differences when it came to who's going to do what around the house, like who's doing laundry, who's cooking tonight. I mean, Jenny was wanting to make out all the time and I just wanted to cuddle, you know. I mean, it was just, again, one of the ways that we were different. She's not in the room right now, and please don't tell her I said that, okay? Uh, But, you know, even with our closets, you know, and and how we kept our closets organized. And and I think if you're married, if you've been married for a while now, you know what I'm talking about, you know, as you get used to these differences. And, And if you lived alone before marrying... And especially if you're a guy, you know that there are some challenges maybe when it comes to decorating. I mean, how many of you now have a bed that looks something like this? Um, You know, and it kind of goes that you've got like 64 pillows on your bed and each of them has a precise position. And your wife gets mad at you all the time because you don't help make the bed, but you have no idea how it goes back together. I mean, you, you don't have a clue, you know, where anything goes. You know, the fact is that we're different. You know, men and women are different. God made us different. And I like what one person said. He said that, uh, you know, when people are dating, opposites at, uh, attract, but when people get married, opposites attack. You know, this may or may not surprise you, but your spiritual enemy, the spiritual enemy wants to tear your marriage apart. I mean, one of his greatest desires is to pull your marriage apart. And, and you need to hear that today, especially if you're just recently married or maybe you've been married for a while. In fact, when it comes to marriage, Satan's desire is division. His desire is competition in marriage. God's plan for marriage is completion. You know, that two would become one, as we're going to talk about today. Satan's goal is to tear apart marriages, but God's desire is to strengthen marriages and to help our marriages uh, to be the very best that they can be. And so, again, we're in this series called The Vow. We're looking at four vows, four promises together, a couple more over these next couple of weeks, four promises that I believe that if incorporated in any marriage, if you accept them and you take them as your own and you live them as an example, that these vows have the potential to change a marriage for good and to change it forever. And so uh, let's let just take a moment, if we, if we may, just to kind of review where we've been, because maybe this is your first Sunday with us today, or maybe you've missed one in there. Uh, you can always go to our website and listen to the podcast of our different messages, but but we're looking at four vows together. The first vow is this. If you're reviewing, if you want to take notes, the first vow is the vow of priority. Uh, The vow of priority just simply says, next to Christ, you are my priority. You know, next to Jesus Christ, you are my priority. I, I make this promise to Jenny in our marriage that my relationship with God comes first. Uh, He is the foundation for my life. It's where I get my strength and, and my courage and my patience. You know, God comes first, but Jenny is second. She is second to no one else, but 
to my relationship with God. And, and so if you're here today, you know, a young woman, uh, maybe you're single and you hope to be married one day, what do you go looking for in a husband? I want to challenge you, go look for someone whose relationship with God is their first priority, you know, and, and if not, I, I would marry, you know. Uh, if you're a young, you know, man and you're, you know, waiting or dating, you know, and making that decision, is this the person that I want to marry? I just challenge you with the question is, you know, does, does that young woman, is her relationship with God her very first priority? God first, you know, your second. The second vow is the vow of pursuit. And the vow of pursuit just says, I will always pursue you. And last week we had a little fun. Jenny was up here on the stage with me and, and we shared that no matter how long you've been married, you can't ever quit doing those things that brought you together as a couple. I mean, don't ever quit pursuing one another, whether you've been married for two years or 13 years or 35 years. And vow number three, the vow that we're looking at today is the vow of partnership. And the vow of partnership just basically says, it's not about me, it's about we. It's not about me, it's about we. I made this promise, you know, to Jenny on my wedding day, and many of you, you made the same promise, you know, on your wedding day. It's no longer about me and just what I need. The marriage is about we. It's about two becoming one. Uh, turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2, if you've got your own Bible. Genesis 2, verse 24. We've looked at this verse uh, a couple of times over the last couple of weeks. We'll look at it again today and again next week. But in Genesis 2, 24, God, God speaks and really lays the foundation for marriages in our world today. And in Genesis 2, 24, he says this, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, if you have your own Bible and if you're taking notes and you want to underline our key phrase today, it's that phrase, the two will become one flesh. The two will become one. You know, with verse 24, God lays out what I believe to be the most foundational verse on the definition of marriage in all of Scripture. God defines marriage as this covenant partnership between one man and one woman. He says the two will become one. Now, the Hebrew word for one here is the word, well, in Hebrew, it looks like the word ache, uh, but it's actually the word ektad. You pronounce it ektad. It means united, all together, uh, completely joined as one. And I like the way that Solomon uh, describes this oneness in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's talking about two, but he said in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12, that one may be overpowered but two can stand strong. And he said, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Now, picture this in marriage, if you would, all right? The two become one. The two, husband and wife, are joined together as one in a marriage. And so, for example, uh, it would mean me as a husband and Jenny as my wife, that we are joined together in marriage. And, and if you could just kind of imagine, you know, a three-legged race. Uh, you've ever been a part of a three-legged race before or seen a three-legged race that two people, Jenny and I, we would stand side by side, uh, our inner legs joined together and, and some sort of rope that ties the two of us together so that we become one. Now, I'm still an individual and Jenny is still an individual, but we are joined together in our marriage by the cord that ties us together as one, that cord being Jesus Christ. And if we will work together, and if we will run together and if we will serve together at the same pace, then, you know, you can see how God can do some amazing things in any marriage and some amazing work with two people who have become one so that they might glorify God together. But if I decide to go my own way and Jenny decides to go her own way, well, I think you could see how even in a three-legged race, that craziness can so, can so quickly set in. I mean, there is no harmony 
you know, there is no shared direction or no shared vision. I mean, we're going to be competing and fighting against each other, trying to go, all our dire- go our directions at the same time. Again, Satan wants competition. It's his plan. God wants to bring about completion. He wants to strengthen us, you know, and he wants to complete us. You know, Jesus Christ is the cord that ties two lives in a covenant marriage together, two lives as they become one life or one flesh, again, as Genesis 2 and other places describe it. And so that's why we're talking about the vow of partnership today. You know, the vow of partnership is a vow of selflessness. It's setting aside my self-will. It says that when you get married, you promise that it's no longer about me, but now it's about we. And from the wedding day forward, it's husband and wife, two individuals who have become one, one flesh. Now, how do we best understand the vow of partnership and what it means for us in our marriages? Well, to start today, I just want to make a very true statement, a true statement that might be a new statement for some of you. And I believe the truth of this statement has the power to help shape uh, and redefine and even rescue some of our marriages to strengthen our marriages uh, if you are married or if you're single and hope to be married one day. In fact, I know the truth and, and the power of this statement has saved even some of the marriages in our church. I mean, we desperately need the power and the truth of this statement today. And what is it? We need to recognize that marriage is a covenant and not a contract. I, I want you to see today the difference in why, why God views marriage as this covenant partnership. And it is so much more than a contract. And there is a really big difference. You know, you can see a great picture of marriage as a covenant in the Old Testament book of Malachi. Uh, The people of God were whining, all right? They were crying out to God with things like, why aren't you answering our prayers? You know, why aren't you listening to us? And, And God is going to get back to them. And what he basically says to them is that you've been unfaithful to your wives and therefore I I am not going to answer any of your prayers. And and I just want to look at this one verse with you from Malachi chapter 2 verse 14. Malachi speaking on behalf of God here says this. You ask why? Why isn't God answering these prayers? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage, And say it with me, covenant. I mean, your wife is your partner, Malachi says. She is the wife of your marriage covenant. And I just believe that it is so important that you and I, that we see this today. And we get our hearts and our minds around this, that in God's eyes, marriage is a covenant. It's not a contract. Now, what's the difference? Well, if you're taking notes, write this down. A contract, a contract is based on mutual distrust. I mean, it really is when you think about it. It's based on mutual distrust. Like marriage contract says, hey, I'm in as much as you're in. Or I'm willing to bring as much to this as you're willing to bring to this. I'm in as long as my needs are getting met. And so I'll bring 50% and you bring 50% and we'll see what we can do together. And as Americans, we're drowning in contracts, aren't we? I mean, we got contracts all over the place. I mean, you want to buy a house, you you, you, you sign a contract. I mean, if you want to get a new phone plan, there's a contract involved. If you want to buy a car, you sign a contract. And so we're always signing on the dotted line. I mean, a contract is an agreement between two parties. But here's what happens. If I violate my side of the contract, then you have the right to take action against me. If I don't pay my loan, the bank can repossess my car. If I don't pay my mortgage, the bank can foreclose on me. They, the, the, the phone company can shut off my phone service. And the real challenge today is that a lot of people view marriage as really nothing more 
than a contract. And so what happens is that two people will fall in love. You know, they'll throw down $20,000 or so and, and throw a big party. And at the end of the wedding ceremony, they sign a contract. And, and if someone breaks the contract, well, then I guess the agreement is over. Because in a contract, if you don't hold up your end, well, then I can get out. Or if my needs aren't getting met in this contract, then I have the right to take action. It's marriage as a contract. Now, you might hear something like that and say, well, that just sounds a little extreme, doesn't it? Well, is it? Or is it maybe more true than we realize? God, on the other hand, the creator of marriage, defines marriage as a covenant. It's a covenant partnership. And marriage as a covenant changes everything. Marriage as a contract is based on mutual distrust. It's about me and what I need and what I deserve and what I expect from this. But marriage as a covenant, write this down, it's based on mutual commitment. It's based on mutual commitment. It's a partnership where the marriage is viewed as an unending, totally binding commitment where it's no longer about me, it's about we. The two have become one, joined together by God as one flesh. And the power of the covenant is this, that the power of the covenant is that it can be maintained by both husband and wife or it can be maintained even by one when the other is not willing. The marriage covenant says, you know, you might, you might break this. You might not be willing to hold up your end of the covenant, but I'm not going to break my covenant with you and with God. I'm all in. I'm totally in. There's no back door on this for me. I, I am in 100% of this marriage. I am giving my covenant vows to you, not before the state of Indiana, but I'm giving my covenant vows to you before God on this day. And so for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, for better or worse, I commit to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The marriage covenant is a covenant between husband and wife and God where God joins two together and they become one, one flesh, united together by Jesus Christ. Now the word covenant comes from the Hebrew word berit. I think that's how you pronounce it. I don't know for sure, but it literally means a cutting. It's a, it's a binding agreement, a blood covenant. And from God's perspective, again, marriage is not a contract. It's a blood covenant. And I want you to see how this covenant is even demonstrated in a traditional wedding ceremony. Um, as a former college pastor and young adult pastor, and you know, I've been in mar- or, uh, uh, you know, ministry now for over 10 years, I've done a lot of weddings. And they're always fun. And there are a lot of unique weddings. And I've done weddings inside and outside and at churches and at different halls and stuff. But for the most part, when it comes to the wedding ceremony, I'm a little uncompromising on what I believe are some very important elements to the wedding ceremony. And so uh, if you could picture this with me, you know, just the back doors open. All right. It's the wedding day. All right. And there's a center aisle and there comes the father and the bride and, you know, the grooms up front with me. And, you know, you can just see the looks on their faces as they see one another for the first time. And they look spectacular. They're never going to look that good ever again. All right. But, you know, they coming down the aisle and again, he's looking at her and she's looking at him and dad's in the middle. Like, you know, if you heard her, like I will take you out. And so, you know, they get to the front and as you get people seated, you know, the, the father is still there standing between them. But what we'll normally do are some questions of intent. And so I'll look to the groom and I'll ask questions like, you know, will you take her as your wife? Will you always love and respect her? And then he'll end with an I will or an I promise. And then we'll do the same for the bride. And what's interesting and what's so purposeful in this is that the two 
are entering into a covenant with one another, but in this particular portion, they're not necessarily responding to one another. They're, they're speaking to me, but they're not so much answering me as they're speaking to God. I mean, they're answering these questions before God, these I promise, I will. And so the bride is listening and she is a witness of this. And the friends and the family that are gathered, they are participating in this covenant that is coming together. There's this vertical aspect to every covenant. But there's a horizontal aspect to the covenant too because later on in the ceremony, the bride and groom, they'll turn and they'll face one another and they'll share their vows or their promises with each other. Again, God is present. He is represented. He is playing a part in all of this. He's a witness to this, but so are the friends and the family as the two are becoming one flesh together. They are entering into this marriage covenant you know, with one another. And, and it's really so fascinating when you think about it and, and when you think about how it works that there's this vertical and there's this horizontal aspect as the two become one as Jesus Christ binds them together. Now, covenants are a big part of the entire Bible. And one of the most well-known covenants is the covenant that God made with Noah. You know, that God said to him following the flood, there was a spoken word to the covenant. I will never again destroy the world with the flood. But there was also a physical symbol as a part of that covenant too that God put a rainbow in the sky. And so there was this spoken promise and there was a physical symbol too. And, and we see both in the covenant of marriage. There is the spoken word, I will, I promise. You know, I am making these vows to you today. There are the spoken words. But there's also the physical symbol in the covenant too. Now in the Old Testament, what would happen many times is that the bride and the groom, they would stand with the priest and the priest would eventually ask for their hands and he would take a sharp knife or he'd take a sharp blade and he'd cut into the palm of the groom and he would cut into the palm of the bride because the book of Leviticus says that life is in the blood and so he would join the two hands together so that their blood would mix and then tie their hands together as a symbol of this uniting, of this becoming one flesh. And now, I've never been a part of a ceremony where we've done that. You know, it's usually like a wedding candle or sand or something like that, you know, being poured together. And then somebody that's like, you know, got their American Idol moment off to the side, you know, as they sing this great song or something. But, but, but the fascinating thing is this, I, I will tell you how, you know, the covenant of marriage, the, how it's demonstrated physically, you know, in God's plan for marriage, he has established the gift of sexual intercourse for the covenant of marriage. That was God's plan, his intent. And when people are living, when we're living according to God's perfect plan for our lives, the virgin male and the virgin female consummate their marriage on the wedding night and there is a cutting or a shedding of blood. It's a physical picture of the blood covenant established as two become one flesh. You've got the spoken word in the vows and you've got the physical symbol in intercourse. Again, it's two becoming one. Now, can I, can I just add this before we move on? What I've just explained, I think, is one of the great reasons why sex and the gift of intercourse has been reserved for marriage. That's God's plan. Like, that is God's best for us. And when we're living according to God's plan in our lives, sex is reserved for marriage. But unfortunately, what happens today is that people see marriage as really nothing more than a contract rather than a covenant. And And so before we get married, and since marriage isn't viewed in light of God's plan, two people will start dating, and before you knew it, they're doing married people sort of things. And it starts off as two people sharing their hearts, and then quickly becomes two people that spend the night together, and then maybe share in a bed, and before you know it, he's got a toothbrush at her place, and she's got a drawer at his, and the next thing you know, they're living together, and they're playing marriage. But there is no covenant. The Bible teaches that the marriage bed should be kept pure. 
Again, this is God's best design for us, his perfect plan, you know, and that sex is to be enjoyed within marriage only. And so I just want to take a moment today and say, if you're in middle school or if you're in high school or college or you're single, um, God's best for you is for you to, to save yourselves physically, you know, until marriage one day, to save yourself for your husband or your wife. Now, I know that that seems a little old-fashioned, and that's kind of against what the world teaches today and what others say, but that's just sort of the life that we've been called to in Jesus. And it's not about God keeping something from you. I mean, God has something great for you. I mean, he has something planned for you that's far greater, a far greater blessing, you know, than any one night can can give to anyone. And so if you're dating right now, I I just want to challenge you to establish the appropriate boundaries in your life, you know, and get the accountability around you that you need and and to reserve, you know, sex for your husband or wife one day. And if he or she can't appreciate it, then maybe they need to take a hike, you know, and and maybe they need to move on to somebody else. And, And if you're a Christian today, I mean, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, um, I just want to say that if you're living with somebody that's not your husband or wife, um, I want to challenge you to make a change. You know, I, I want to challenge you to, to move out, even if you plan to get married and even if that's coming up. I mean, don't play marriage. It's more than a contract, even if you don't view it as that. God, God has our very best in mind, you know, and And I just think one of the most dangerous things in in all of life is this, and I fight with this all the time, is that I can't have it my way and sort of God's. He doesn't tolerate that. And, and, you know, he doesn't want to compromise with us in this area. Like, oh, well, all right. You know, I mean, this is, I will just compromise in this one little area, you know. And again, it's not about guilting us and it's not about shaming you, no matter where you are today or what's going on in your life, because I mean, if you're feeling some conviction or you're caught up in a pattern of things right now and you just know, hey, this isn't where I want to believe to be, it's repentance. And repentance is really that good. And forgiveness is as great as promised and more so. That you and I, we were never meant to carry around that shame or guilt. That God wants to take all that from us. And because of what Jesus Christ has done, he has offered forgiveness to every single one of us. But I'll tell you that repentance is confession. But repentance is also about going in a new direction. And so as 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If you need to do that today, then I pray and ask you, you know, to ask God, God, what's the new direction for me in my life? And he'll give that to you. And I believe that no matter where you've been or what you've done in the past, God is that good. And he can always give you the very best. He's got the very best plan for you. So marriage is a covenant. It's not a contract. A contract says that it's a 50-50 agreement. You know, this is what I bring. This is what I expect out of this. A marriage covenant says that it's a 100-100 arrangement. I am bringing everything that I have into this marriage. Like it or not, baby, you know, here I come. You know, this, this, is, you know, this is who you get. But it's where it's no longer about me. It's about we. It's husband serving wife. It's wife serving husband. One together, covenant partners tied together by Jesus Christ. Now, what does that look like this afternoon? What's that look like tomorrow? I mean, what does it mean to live in partnership with one another, to live in the covenant of marriage with one another? If you're taking notes, write this down. I believe the key to partnership, a covenant marriage that God has in mind for every single one of us, is found in two words. It's mutual submission. The God's best 
for all of us is mutual submission. What does God expect of, his husband, uh, of the husbands? What does God expect of wives? It's mutual submission. Please, before we go any further today, before we look at any other verses, hear these two words as they, they, they are the key to what the Bible has in mind for us when it comes to marriage. What is the key to partnership in marriage today for husbands and wives? It's mutual submission. Look at, look at this verse. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul says, submit to one another. Again, that's where we get mutual submission from. Paul, Before Paul launches into this famous paragraph on marriage, I just want you to see that he makes this introductory statement here in verse 21. But verse 21 is more than just simply an introductory statement to what he has to say about marriage, but it also serves as a transition statement for everything that he's been talking about up until this point. And up until this point, the Apostle Paul has been talking about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That, that when we're living our life according to God's plan and God's purposes, we are leaning into the power of the Spirit. We are leaning into God's presence in us and through us. It's a life where we daily surrender. It's a life of selflessness. It's a life where we set aside our pride and our self-centeredness so that we can humbly serve others as Jesus did. And I just want you to see that I believe that is why the timing you know, of his statement on submission is so important because what he's really saying is you can't submit on your own. You and I, we don't have that power in us to continue submitting to our husbands, to our wives, to anyone for that matter on a daily basis. We need God's presence in us. We need his spirit and his power to enable us to serve others. And so Paul turns his attention now from talking about Christians in general to talking specifically about Christian husbands and wives. And Paul says, submit to one another. This is what I've called you to. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't think of any other one word in all of Scripture that draws up or stirs up more controversy or emotion than the word submit. And that's so important that we not miss that, that what Paul is calling men and women to do. He says to submit to one another. That's where it starts. And as we look at these next verses today, I just want to challenge you to let the Bible speak. You know, to let Scripture speak, to let God's Word speak to you, and, and not to listen to what your friends have said about this. Or not to listen to what Cosmos says about this or what some so-called idiot Christian once said about these verses. God created marriage. It's by His design. And if He created it, then He must have some insight that we can gain as individual for our marriages. And so Paul calls us to submit to one another as husbands and wives. And he's already stated that the Spirit of God is the one who gives us the power to live this way. And so the picture that we get here in verse 21, and I just think this is interesting, is not of two needy people, all right? These aren't two people that are still trying to figure out their purpose in life or their value in life. The husband and wife here aren't trying to find meaning and significance in one another. They know and have already discovered that this only comes from God. It only comes by our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, the problem that you and I, that we run into in our marriages is that we try and uh, fulfill our needs or fill our emotional tanks through our spouse that we have this expectation of them and and if you do that you know and i'm guilty of doing that sooner or later you'll fail i mean your spouse will always fail you in this and and that's why we've got to lean on god we've got to lean on god and we've got to trust him to meet all of our needs you know our purpose is found in jesus and again it's his power inside of us that can give us that ability to be a godly husband or to be a godly wife now paul continues in verse 22 he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, 
so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, again, in verse 21, Paul says, submit to one another. This is where it starts. But starting in verse 22, Paul speaks directly to wives and then eventually to husbands. And he says, wives, submit to your husbands in everything. But then he turns right around and says, husbands, love your wives and love your wives as Jesus Christ loved the church. For each, God has an individual call to sacrifice and to selflessness that is far beyond what we're capable of doing in our own power for every one of us. But Paul speaks first to wives and he says, submit to your husband. Now that word submit is an interesting word. And in every situation here, all throughout, it's the Greek word. Uh, It's a Greek word. It's a military term. You know, this word submission, it, it explains what it means for a soldier to submit to an officer. And for those of you that have served or are serving, or if you can imagine serving, when you join the military, you give up control of things like your schedule. You give up control of things like your vacation and what you eat. You, you surrender your independence for the sake of the whole. And so husbands and wives are called to this same sort of submission, this kind of selfless living where Paul says, submit to one another. And then specifically, Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands as is to the Lord. That means that when God is working in you and when you are fully surrendered to him and his power for your life, you can submit to your husband. You can set aside your own needs, your own will in order to humbly serve your husband. Now, let me tell you what this verse doesn't mean. All right, because that's just as important. This verse doesn't mean that your husband is your boss. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that he calls the shots. It doesn't mean that he's smarter, that he's more intelligent, that he's more capable. This verse doesn't mean that women are commanded to cook, to clean, to do the laundry, or to wear bows and ribbons in their hair, all right? But the sad truth is this, that for many years, women have been treated unfairly, have been underpaid, and have not been given the chance to lead. And so I would say that in my opinion, one of the reasons that this verse is so challenging for some to accept and even consider is the fact that it has been distorted and abused over and over again. My buddy Josh Tandy, who's on staff here as uh, our youth and uh, small groups pastor, and he was telling me a story about a buddy of his that was just a few weeks on the job at a new church in Illinois, and he was just fresh out of school and serving the church for the very first time. And, well, he got an interesting phone call one day, and you need to know... We get some interesting phone calls once in a while. It just kind of goes with the territory. But again, he's new on the job. He's fresh at this, and he's in his office. Well, the phone buzzes. It's the assistant, and she begins with, uh, I'm sorry. And if you get an I'm sorry, you know that it's, it's not good. And, but anyway, she says, there's a guy on the other end, and I, I, you, I think you need to talk to him. And so, you know, this guy picks up the phone, and there's just immediately yelling and shouting at one another on the other end. And what he comes to discover is that it's a wife and a husband just yelling at one another. And the husband's on the other end, and so he picks up the phone and says, hello. And the guy's like, I just want to know, does the Bible say wives are supposed to submit to their husbands? And, I mean, you always hate when you get pinned with a question like that, you know. And so, you know, his mind's racing, you know, what do I say, what do I respond? And so the guy goes, I want to know, does the Bible say that wives are supposed to submit to their husbands? And so he gives a yes, but, and before he can get out any other word, click. You know, it's just like, that's all the guy wanted to know. You know, does the Bible say just this? You know, and unfortunately, there are men out there who control dominate and abuse their wives. And sadly, there have been some so-called Christian men who have used verses like these to belittle their wives and belittle their daughters. 
And for those who have done that, they'll, they'll, they'll be held accountable with God one day. And, and it's not just dominant men either, you know, but a lot of passive men too who have no guts or no willingness to stand up for anything in their life, including their families or their marriages, you know, their kids. You know, it's the passive man who won't make a decision or won't prioritize his relationship with God or doesn't pay attention to his wife and neglects all of his responsibilities while he spends all the time on an iPad or playing video games or something. And when images of a man or a husband like that come to mind, you can see why it's difficult for some women to hear the words, wives submit to your husbands when they're thinking to themselves, why would I ever want to submit to a man like that? But when it's all working according to God's plan and husband and wife are submitting to one another, what a picture of what a marriage truly can be. And so God says, submit to one another. And then he says, wives, submit to your husbands. Ladies, when you get married, you enter into a covenant marriage, a marriage covenant before God. And as God has called all of his children, all of his followers, his desire is that you will set aside your selfish desires, that you're not living for yourself anymore. It's about two becoming one. You're living for God and you're living for your husband now. Now, I'm not going to lie and say that that's easy, all right? And anybody that has ever said that marriage is easy is a big fat liar, all right? Submission takes work. It takes hard work. It requires surrender. Again, it's why we need the presence of God. We need the spirit of God in us and we need his word to direct us. So Paul says, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And basically, as Christians... We're called over and over again to set aside our selfish ways in order to humbly serve God. You know, and as we think about what submission means in our marriage, we really only need to look to the life that God has called all of his children to. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 is evidence of this. Paul is writing, he's just saying, hey, here's what it means to follow Jesus. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of of others. I mean, how many times do we, you know, allow selfish ambition to take over in our marriages? Well, I'm guilty of that all the time. And how does that work out for us? But Paul says, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Don't just simply look out for your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Again, we're very me-centered people. You know, we're often very me-centered in our marriages. In Romans chapter 15, verses 1 to 3, again, same sort of teaching. Paul says, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. You know, wives, submission is not about pleasing yourself. Husbands, submission is not about what I can get back out of this. We're called to build each other up for his good, for her good. And then Galatians 5, 13, Paul says, You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. The sinful nature makes it all about me, doesn't it? But rather serve one another in love. You know, Paul says that Christians are, it's the word douloi, it's the word serve, it means bond servants. We belong to Christ. And because we belong to Jesus Christ, we're called to serve one another in love. You know, Jesus became a servant and he gave gave his life to meet our needs at the cost of his own and we belong to him now. And we're called to serve him and one another. And and so this servant word, 
is so important for us in our marriages. You know, what does a servant do? He or she is always putting the needs of the other first. You know, this is the life that we're called to as God's children. You know, it's the way that we're called to treat others. And, and if it's the way that we're just simply called to treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, well, then how much more intensely does God mean it for our marriages? So wives, submit to your husband. You know, where it's not about me, it's about we. You know, don't make it about your needs or what I can do, you know, for myself, but it's what can I do to serve my husband and to love my husband? How, how can I submit to him as I would with my faith in Jesus Christ? It's about two becoming one. It's not about me, but it's about we. And husbands, the expectation is no less. In fact, I believe that it's far greater. And in Ephesians 5.25, Paul says this. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Are husbands supposed to love their wives? Yes, Paul already said that in verse 21. Again, it's about mutual submission. And in verse 23, we read that just a moment ago, Paul says that the husband is the spiritual head of the family. Now again, let me tell you what that verse doesn't say. That verse doesn't say that the husband is smarter. It doesn't say that he's more qualified. It doesn't say that his husband supervises his wife or that he gets to make the decisions all the time. Jesus Christ is the Lord over everything. The husband is the Lord over nothing. All right? But let me try and illustrate what this means. You know, Jenny and I, we've been married for almost 14 years now. We don't have a perfect marriage. We can't. We're not perfect people. No one marries, as we talked about last week, no one marries a perfect husband. No one marries a perfect wife. And, but I'll tell you what we do know. We know and we believe that we're called together as one, that we become one flesh through Jesus Christ, and that we're called to this life of mutual submission. And so we practice this. I mean, we truly believe that our marriage is a partnership where God has brought us together to become one, and we complement each other in this. In fact, I'll just tell you one of the greatest ways that I see this. I remember before going into ministry, uh, praying about and pursuing an opportunity, and I talked to a good buddy friend of mine. He, he's a pastor, a guy that I grew up with. He was my youth pastor, and, and I talked with him. Hey, what do I need to know? You know, how do I make a decision like this? And, and so we talked about faith, and we talked about prayer, but I'll tell you, so that, I'll give you one of the best pieces of advice that I can give you for this situation and for the rest of your life in ministry. He said, it's this, always pay attention to what your wife's thinking. Because if God is going to call you somewhere in ministry, he said, there's a good chance that he'll have already called her there first. And she's going to see things that you're never going to see. So you always listen and pay attention to what your wife has to say. And I can't tell you how that has worked out for us over and over again in our life and in our marriage. You know, and Jenny has this great ability to sense out phoniness, to sniff it out. I mean, I can talk to somebody and walk away and say, wow, that's a really fascinating person. And she'd be like, I'm not buying it. You know, I, you know something, something doesn't smell right there. You know, something, something's not sitting right. You know, we're, we're about a partnership in our home and, and we make decisions together. And sometimes we don't always agree. And so we go with what she's thinking. And sometimes we grow you. We'll leave it at that. Sometimes we go with what I'm thinking, you know. She's in charge of the money at our house. I get an allowance every two weeks. Thank you, Dave Ramsey. You know, I mean, that's the way that it rolls. You know, and while she does most of the cooking and, and keeping our house, I mean, that, that's just one of the ways that she helps to lead in our home. But I'll tell you what, I'm expected to be a part of that. And I better not take advantage of that. And sometimes I do. I mean, we get the kids ready for bed together most every night. You know, we're submitting to one another. She has incredible respect for me. I have incredible respect for her. Do we have this figured out? No way. Do we fight? Yes. Do we get on each other's nerves? Yes, we do. We go through challenging seasons. We're very me-centered people. But we know the right answer. We know that marriage is about a partnership. It's not about me. 
It's about we. Now, has God called me to be the spiritual leader of my family? Yes. I mean, I believe that the Bible says that the man is the head of the family. And that normally means leader and ruler and authority. But what I believe Paul is getting here is that he's helping me and us to understand that God has placed an incredible responsibility on me. Again, who's our example? It's Jesus Christ, and he is the great example. You know, Jesus gave his life for you and me and for the church. And a wife, a wise, and a Christ-honoring husband is not going to take advantage or manipulate or abuse his role as the God-appointed leader in the home. And so for husbands, for me, I believe that God's expectation for me and for you and for always is this, that we will always lead the way in modeling the way. You know, that when it comes to following Jesus, that we have a call, that there is an expectation on us by God that we will lead the way for our families, that we are called to a life of humility and sacrifice and what it means to love and what it means to serve others in this world. And we're not just saying it, but we're demonstrating it. And what is one of the greatest ways that we can demonstrate that for our wives and for our children and for others? It's when we submit to our wives, when we show them mutual submission by the power of the Spirit in us, and we love them and we serve them just as Jesus Christ did for you and me. We'll all stand before Jesus Christ on the judgment day one day. But do you know, and I believe this, I believe this, that, that as husbands, that as a husband, I will be held potentially even more accountable for my marriage and for my children and for my family, that that is an expectation that God has put on me. But that is an expectation that he has on all men and all husbands, this life of sacrifice and surrender and such, life, uh, such love for our wives that we would be willing to lose our lives for them. And women, who wouldn't want to marry a man like that? I like how Tim Keller defines it. He says it this way. He says, submission is not thinking less of yourself or more of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Mutual submission, it's about two becoming one. It's this life of selflessness, serving one another, where submission is the foundation with any relationship as two become one. You know, how do you live a life of submission? How do you live a life of submission when you know and others would agree that your husband doesn't deserve it? How how do you live a life of submission if you know and believe that your wife has already given up on your marriage? Friends, the answer is in 521 again, when Paul says submit to one another, but how? out of reverence for Jesus Christ. You know, don't submit because they deserve it. They don't. They never will. Don't submit because you feel like it, because you and I will only get so far. But we submit out of reverence for Jesus Christ and out of obedience to God. I mean, I can submit to God when I am truly overwhelmed for God and His love for me. You know, when I see that, when I'm reminded of that, I can submit when I think about His grace and His forgiveness and how it's extended to me over and over and over again. I can submit when I consider that Jesus Christ gave up His position in heaven and took on the nature of a servant and walked this earth and gave His life on the cross so that I can have life and have freedom. And if He can do that, then I can love my wife. You know, marriage is so much like the gospel. Your spouse doesn't deserve your love. But you and I, we don't deserve God's love either. But we're so loved by him that Jesus Christ, he came to the earth and he lived and he died for me and for you too.